Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know in him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But if we are not of those, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Heavenly Father, God, I I pray uh, this morning for uh, for each and every soul here, each and every person. God, I pray that you uh, would show them your love. A unique love that that uh, that is personal, personal for each each one of us. God, help us to grow uh, in our confidence in you, Lord. Help us to uh, see uh, see through the struggles, God. Help us to put our faith in you through those the tough times in life, uh, God. I pray that you uh, would um, give Reed a, a supernatural power today, God, to. Um, to um, touch each and every heart with your word uh, that he would speak today, uh, the word that you have uh, 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 for all of us together, God. I I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I love getting the chance to proclaim God's word. I'm glad you're here. And we're just going to together ask God to open up our hearts and our ears to really understand this. Is the, this is, in some ways, might be considered a hard passage, a tough passage. But I think God has something really special for us here this morning. I think he has a powerful message to us from the Holy Spirit uh, that he wants us to hear today. So appreciate Brian's prayer. And we're going to just enter this with a spirit of expectancy that God's going to do something powerful and great and needed in our hearts and lives today. The old Bible commentator J. Vernon McGee, who I haven't quoted him forever, but he said, this is a passage that can make your hair stand on end. It does. I mean, if you read through this, 
and you think at all about what it's saying, it will make your hair stand on end. And I can't change that, and I shouldn't change that. Uh, In many churches today, warnings like this are effectively redacted from the Bible, never taught, never read. But it is always a serious mistake to ignore the Holy Spirit. God's purpose in warning us is to keep us near to him. He wants our happiness and our salvation and our safety. And he warns us so that terrible things may not happen to us. Last year, in just one eight-day period, three people fell hundreds of feet to their death at the Grand Canyon. There are warnings posted. Do not climb over the barriers. Stay at least six feet from the edge of the rim. But some people climb out to the very edge and fall to their death. Every year, many deaths at the Grand Canyon. But other people, other visitors go to the park, they see the sheer drop off, they see the rocks hundreds of feet below, and they stay back far enough to enjoy the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. Adolph Sapphire wasn't thinking about the Grand Canyon when he wrote this, but he said, the believer sees the precipice of apostasy and clings to God. In other words, the the believer sees the disaster of falling away from God and clings to God all the more. These warnings, this warning, all the the warnings of the Bible are to make us say soberly, I am not going there. I'm not going anywhere near that. I don't want any part of that. This sober caution is always found in those who walk in happy and close communion with God. This reverential fear is almost never found in those who fall away from God. The warnings are so strong precisely because the dangers are so great. Again, I quote from Adolf Sapphire, an old commentator on Hebrews. He says, To keep people from falling over a precipice, we do not put up a slender and graceful hedge of flowers, but we put up the strongest barrier we can. And we should thank God that he loves us enough to put up a strong barrier of warning for our well-being. When I was looking at the statistics on deaths in the Grand Canyon, I ran across an article that the, the title, when I read it, it just kind of chills went through my body. I, I'm not saying it was the Holy Spirit, but it just really struck me. And this, was, this was the title of the article. It takes one bad step, people die at the Grand Canyon because it is a beautiful and a dangerous place. Well, the Bible reveals that life, this life that we live, is, a, is beautiful and dangerous. There's the incredible beauty of salvation and the terrible danger of eternal destruction. And people need to know about both. 
There's a tremendous pushback today to any mention at all of God's righteous anger, wrath, and judgment. And I'm gonna share just two reasons why this is so wrong. Number one, if our sins have not put us in a position to deserve God's wrath and judgment, then the mercy and grace of God in saving us from that judgment is totally meaningless. It means nothing. In other words, if we deny a God who judges, we might as well deny salvation and forgiveness and grace and love and favor and the blood of Jesus. None of them are needed. These are all needed because of the danger that our sin has put us in. Secondly, J.I. Packer uh, said, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? In other words, would God be good if he was indifferent to rape and hatred and jealousy and greed and killing and all the ugly stuff that we humans, human beings do, all the ugly dark sins. Of course he wouldn't be. He wouldn't be a good God. He wouldn't be a holy God, a righteous God. Sam Storm said that God's wrath is his antagonism toward all that is unholy. God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. It is because God loves purity and peace and perfection that he reacts angrily toward anything or anyone who defies them. I think those are really important things for us to hear in the body of Christ today. Now, with those things said, I'm about ready to start the message. <laughs> and I'm gonna start somewhere else. I'm gonna start with a saying of Jesus. And as I looked at this passage and got ready to study, study it, uh, one saying of Jesus just came immediately, just flashed to my mind. And to me, it communicates in a very powerful way much the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying in this passage. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I have never farmed, but I get this image. At least I think I do. You grip the plow in your hand and you look ahead and you plow the ground all the way to the end of the line. You don't let go, and you can't look back. And Jesus invites us to attach ourselves to him like we would put our hand to the plow. He does not invite us to a come-when-you-want, leave-when-you-want kind of relationship. We enter the kingdom of God, or we enter the kingdom of heaven by a faith hold on Jesus that inherently means we turn our back on the world and turn toward Jesus. We hold on to Jesus, and departing from Jesus becomes unthinkable. There's an old uh, spiritual, 
And I've actually got a couple of versions of this on my phone. I, I love it. But this old spiritual goes like this. If you want to get to heaven, I tell you how. Just keep your hand on the gospel plow. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. If that plow stays in your hand, land you straight in the promised land. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. If we are followers of Jesus, we have put our hand to the plow and we don't look back and we won't look back. And this is essentially what Hebrews 10.39 says. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls or to the preserving of our souls. The purpose of the book of Hebrews, one of the main purposes of the whole book of Hebrews is to stiffen our resolve. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to stiffen our resolve so that we can say boldly, so that we can stand up and say boldly, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith to the salvation or saving or preserving of our souls. Now this message of holding fast has been forcefully stated throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, verse 6, we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence, boasting in our hope firm to the end. That's what we do. 3.14, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 4.14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This principle, this truth is all throughout the Scripture. Paul said in Colossians, God will present you holy in his sight without blameless, blame, excuse me, let me start over. Paul said, God will present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move away from the hope held out in the gospel. Holding fast to Christ And holding firm to our hope in him is a part of genuine saving faith. Christ holds us fast and we hold him fast. We hold fast to him. There there is no such thing as salvation where Christ holds people fast and they deliberately and continually turn from him to live in sin and unbelief and renounce their Lord and Savior. Just, just doesn't work that way. There, no, you cannot find that kind of situation anywhere in the Bible. The exhortation to hold fast is so needed because in almost any group that calls themselves Christians, in almost any church, there are those, I hope not here, but there are those in most assemblies or gatherings of people who are thinking about turning away and departing from Jesus. They appear 
to be in the company of the saints, but they don't last. As Jesus said, when trouble comes, they fall away. Something will come along and they will shrink back. And the warning of Hebrews is don't let this be the case with any of you. Hebrews 3.12, take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The author of Hebrews was concerned about Jews who had uh, received the knowledge of the truth about Jesus, but instead of holding fast to that truth, instead of holding fast to Jesus, they were turning away, or at least considering turning away, to go back to the old sacrificial system of the law. Some of you might have heard the uh, recent interview that Aaron Rodgers did with his girlfriend, Danica uh, Patrick, in which he renounced, uh, publicly renounced, went on the record publicly to renounce his, his Christianity. Uh, he said he had grown up in the church, and I like Aaron Rodgers, I'm not here to defend any Green Bay Packer fans, but he said he'd grown up in the church, he went to Young Life meetings, uh, he even did some mission work with the homeless, but now he has rejected his Christian faith, his Christian upbringing, and he said he no longer believes in God. This scripture says that people who willfully and deliberately turn away from Christ have put themselves in a frightful status before God. Rejecting Jesus is a grave offense against God. But it is also turning away from the only way God's judgment against our sins can be removed from us. If, if we repudiate the only way of salvation, then the only thing that can remain is judgment. And that's exactly what verse 26 says. For if, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I'm going to explain some more about that verse, but first I just want to camp on this point. If you had to jump out of an airplane and you refused to put on a parachute to save yourself, the only thing that remains is an expectation of destruction when you hit the earth. And there is no other parachute than Christ. To reject Christ is to reject the only means whereby we can be saved. That's exactly what Acts 4.12 says. Salvation exists in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, when the author talks about those who are go, on, uh, go on deliberately sinning, he's not talking about those who are, just, who are caught in a sin, even a big sin. He's not talking about those daily faults and sins in which James says we all stumble in many ways. He's already told us earlier in the book that Jesus is a merciful high priest to us when we are tempted and even when we sin because he was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. First John 2, 1, if we sin, I write to you so that you may not sin, but if you, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of assurances throughout the scripture for this. 
But to go on sinning deliberately in this context means deliberately choosing the sin of unbelief, deliberately choosing the sin of turning your back on Jesus. It is willfully turning away from Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews makes the point that the greater the grace that God has offered us, or the greater the grace that God has revealed to us, the greater the punishment, the more severe the punishment for spurning it. That's not my thought. That's what this passage teaches. God gave Jesus as our perfect high priest to offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. God has provided through Christ for the complete cleansing of our sins, for the perfect cleansing of our consciences, and through the blood of Jesus, everything and anything that would hinder our nearness of God has been removed. And now in light of this what I would say glorious privilege, in light of this great and glorious privilege, we are warned that the consequences are severe for those who spurn this or repudiate this. As Hebrews 2.3 says, how shall we escape if, if we neglect such a great salvation? The Israelites were incredibly privileged under Moses. I mean, God spoke face to face with Moses as one man speaks to another. And he revealed directly to Moses his will and his law. The law of Moses came, it came with smoke and fire and miracles and powerful manifestations of God. But with that astonishing revelation came severe loss for those who turned their back on it. And that's what verse 28 says. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, and I'm gonna, this is from the NIV or the NASV. Uh, the, the ESV says the one who has spurned the Son of God the, uh, a couple other versions say, the, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged or insulted the spirit of grace. So he asks, how should we escape judgment if we profane the blood of Christ, that blood which opened the way for us into the very presence of of God, that very blood that is shed for, for the, whole, the sins of the whole world to wash away our sins. This phrase, uh, regard the blood, uh, profane the blood of Jesus or profane the blood of, of, of the covenant, uh, this phrase means to consider the blood of Jesus as common or like it doesn't mean anything to you. It's not precious to you. You just regard it as ordinary blood. How should we escape if we trample underfoot the one who gave his own life to pay for our sins? We, we trample mud and garbage and dirt underfoot and God sees spurning Jesus as treating him like 
garbage or treating him like dirt? How should we escape if we outrage or insult the Holy Spirit who calls us to God and who alone can produce in us all the effects of salvation? And the answer from the author of Hebrews is that no one will escape who treats the blood of Christ, who treats the Son of God, who treats the Holy Spirit in this way. And to reinforce this message about the dangers of abandoning Christ, the author reminds us of who God is and what he has said. Listen carefully to verse 30. For we know him. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Notice this phrase, we know him who said. Or the God that we know has said this. The God that we know has revealed this about him, that he says, vengeance is my prerogative. Vengeance is mine, and I will pay back evil. The God we know has told us that he will judge people. And it is a fearful thing that fall into the hands of the living God. No person, no being is more loving than God. But he also judges willful, persistent rejection of his son. The gospel is a two-edged sword. Paul said it's an aroma to some of life. It's an aroma that gives life to some, and it's an aroma leading to death to others. And I, for the last time, I quote Adolf Sapphire again. His commentary is just so good. He said, the world, the world does not know the sweetness of God's love, nor does it stand in awe before God's wrath. As believers, we know the precious love of God poured into our hearts. We also know that our God is an awesome God. We also know that our God is a consuming fire. We love God, and we know that he loves us, but we also stand in reverential awe of him. One of the common characteristics of many, I might even say most, who turn away from God is that they deny that God could ever judge anyone for anything. And this was part of Aaron Rodgers' statement. I don't know how you can believe in a God who once, notice the word once, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. And many have turned from God because of this same slanderous thought toward God. But to put it like that is a terrible distortion of the God we know. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John says we were already condemned 
He who doesn't believe is, is we're, already, we're already condemned. We start, that's where we start. <laughs> we were already condemned by our sin and rebellion and God in his love, God in his great love, so loved the world that he came to us in Christ to bring us to himself so that we would not perish but have everlasting joy and happiness in eternal life. It is true there will be a fiery judgment for those who spurn God and his son Jesus Christ. But God himself declares that he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I should say that the Holy Spirit declares that through his word. Now, the author immediately follows up this severe warning with words of encouragement. He goes on to remind the Hebrews of the cost they had already paid in being associated with the company of the saints. He said that, Some were evicted from their homes. Uh, Some were put in prison. They had all suffered the shame of being a part of this persecuted community of of believers, this persecuted minority. And so he tells them in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And that's again, that's one of the main messages of Hebrews. Do not throw away your faith. Do not throw away your faith your confidence. And he says, for it has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In other words, he said, keep going on. Finish the race. Great reward is ahead. Verse 37, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay Christ is coming. He's coming soon with massive reward, massive glory for the saints. As the old hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So hold on. Verse 38, my righteous one. In other words, those who are genuine believers, those who are truly disciples of of Jesus, my righteous ones shall live by faith. Faith is not only something to get you into the kingdom. It is how you live life. It's how you live life Right now, it's how you live it this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning. You you get up every morning and you say, oh my God, in you I trust. You trust in Jesus, you trust in God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As an ongoing, as a way of life, the righteous one, the righteous person will live by faith. Faith is what God wants from you now. You live by faith and you keep living by faith. You keep living by faith. Faith in Jesus, faith in God, faith in the Holy Spirit. And we sing that, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We live in that statement, with that statement of faith. We live by faith in the word of God. We live by faith in the blood of Jesus. We live by faith in God's goodness. We live by faith in his faithfulness. Verse 38 goes on, if, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Wow. Shrinking back is an action of retreat, of fear, of refusal to trust, of going back away from God to somebody else or something else, to some other alternative. God said that doesn't please him. He does tell us what does please him. 
Without, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Your confidence in God is what pleases him. And then the author ends on this confident declaration of faith, and I know I'm just kind of skimming over this passage, uh, but I, I gotta take you to the, to the end so that you follow this whole train of thought, and I think Josh is maybe gonna go back and clean up a lot of these details next week, but the author ends on this confident declaration of faith, which I think is the key of this passage, and and one of the most important verses in this whole book. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Everything in this passage is written to draw forth from the Hebrews and from us this unwavering declaration We're to hold fast to Jesus without wavering. (laughs) Uh, Maxwell in our life group brought up, I think it's NIV, says we are to hold fast our confession unswervingly. And he shared how much he liked that, that term. Yeah. So take this statement and make it your own personal confession. Write it on your chalkboard or put it on your refrigerator, but most importantly, write it on your heart. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of our souls. We are going on. We are not taking our hand off the plow. We are not of those who trample underfoot the Son of God. We are those who love and obey and worship the Son of God. We are not of those who profane the blood of Christ. We are of those who consider the blood of Jesus exceedingly precious and valuable. We treasure the blood of Christ and we understand that our souls have been purchased by that blood, something incredibly valuable. We are not of those who insult the Holy Spirit. We are those who honor the Holy Spirit and listen to the Spirit's voice and desire at all times, morning, noon, and night, every day to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Far be it from us to insult Him or outrage Him. We love Him. He's our nearest Friend, in a sense, he is God's way of being with us. He's in us and with us. We are holding fast our assurance unto the end. I want everybody here this morning, I mean every single person, every single person in every seat to be able to say that, to make this confession of faith with a sincere heart and mean it. And if, if, you are no, if you're here this morning and you are not in the company of those holding fast to full assurance of faith, I invite you to come into that company this morning. 
I invite you to come to Jesus and hold fast to him. Let's pray. Stand up with me. I know that just repeating this confession does not change anything by itself. But we're going to repeat it this morning in the faith that the Holy Spirit is so powerfully working in your heart and that, this, that you're going to own this. This is going, to be, this is going to be my confession. If it hasn't before this morning, this is going to be my confession from this day on. I know you don't all have this verse memorized, so just I'm going to repeat the first part, you're going to re- and you're going to repeat it with me, okay? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, okay? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Okay, just wait for me. But we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. But we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. God, you have given us such a precious possession in Jesus. God forbid that any of us here would spurn that or trample underfoot the Son of God. You have given us such a precious gift in the blood of Jesus. God forbid that we would regard that blood as just common or nothing or of no value. No, Lord, we consider the blood of Jesus exceedingly precious the very blood that has purchased our souls and redeemed us for God. 